Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to explore the mysteries of death and then count down the top five worst ways to die. I mean, you have to be able to focus and put aside your emotions and do your job. But every once in a while, you'll see some weird scar and you go, oh, I wonder what that's from. Or you'll see a tattoo with someone's name and you wonder who she is. You were working in New York during 9-11 when 9-11 happened. When did it kind of hit you that this was the significance of that? Oh, the moment it happened. I mean, I was walking into the building when the first plane flew over my head. And I thought, oh, that's weird. That's kind of low. I do know that there have been other cases in other jurisdictions where people were not properly declared dead um, and have come alive either in the cooler or when. I want to thank you guys for joining us so much. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. I think more than anything else, death really defines us. It's the last thing that you're ever going to do. And it's really kind of the motivating factor for everything, right? You have to accomplish these things. You have to live your life. You have to enjoy life. You have to leave a legacy. You have to do all of these things because life ends. And we know so little about it. That's why I think that our first guest is so interesting. She's a forensic pathologist, a medical examiner. She goes to crime scenes and investigates exactly how people die. And her story isn't just filled with these medical mysteries and unusual autopsies and death investigations. She also has a really fascinating perspective on it. Because she was one of the coroners that was working in the morgue in New York City when 9-11 happened. This is Dr. Judy Melanick. Was the goal always to be a medical examiner or was this something that you kind of fell into? Well, I always wanted to be a doctor. I was always interested in science as a kid. I really enjoyed dissecting things in my biology labs. So that probably should have been a hint early on. But uh, really, I didn't know what kind of specialty in medicine I wanted. I didn't know what route, you know, what I would end up being until I figured I would just figure it out in medical school. And part of medical school is doing rotations in various specialties. You spend um, a few weeks on OBGYN, a few weeks in pediatrics, a few weeks in surgery, medicine, and Pathology is actually not part of the medical school rotation system. It's taught in um, second year of medical school, mostly as didactic sessions, as, as lectures. Um, so you don't really get a hands-on experience with it. I had taken a year in medical school to work in the pathology department. It was kind of a gap year to give myself a break and just to explore pathology. And I really liked it. So I thought, 
ah, maybe I'd consider this. But it was actually when I did my surgery rotation that I was hooked. I was like, I'm going to be a surgeon. <laughs> and, and then I actually did the surgery residency. And after about six months, I was, I was burned out. And I said, I need to go back to pathology. I liked pathology. Let's do that. The hook of pathology, was it just kind of figuring things out? Or what was it about it that you think that, that really attracted you to that part? I find pathology to be one of the more intellectual branches of medicine. I mean, they're all intellectual, but pathology, you really have to know everything. Um, you have to know pediatrics because you're going to get spe- uh, specimens from kids. You're going to need to know OBGYN because you're going to get specimens from pregnant people. Um, when it comes to forensic pathology, you have to know surgery because people die after surgery and you have to know trauma, just like an emergency room doctor, because people die after trauma. You have to know toxicology because there's poisonings. And so it really forces you to be a jack of all trades. And I think that that's what draws me to it more than anything else. You graduate from medical school, you go into the specialty. Do you go straight into a coroner's office? Is that how it works? No. In the United States, training for forensic pathology requires you to be a hospital pathologist first. So you have to work in a hospital setting and be able to do uh, surgical pathology, which just means looking at organs that come out of surgery or tissues that are collected from living people to make diagnoses. So pathology is the branch of medicine having to do with the laboratory sciences. Anytime you go to the hospital and they say, we're going to run a bunch of tests, if they're not shooting x-rays at you, it's probably pathology. And as a resident, when you're doing your training, you do rotations in various subspecialties. So one of those was at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, where I got to go out to crime scenes and I got to do autopsies in the morgue um, and also uh, death investigations work in conjunction with uh, the crime scene unit. And I found that really exciting. So that's what really hooked me was my subspecialty rotation in forensics when I was already training in hospital pathology. I think the thing that kind of jumps out at me about it is do you, do you, do you wonder about the person like who they were or anything like that as you're as you're going about it? You do to some degree. I mean not not so much so that you you know agonize over it. I mean you have to be able to focus and put aside your emotions and do your job, but every once in a while you'll see some weird scar and you go, "Ooh, I wonder what that's from." Or you'll see a tattoo with someone's name and you wonder who she is. You know, so so it does it does definitely have a voyeuristic aspect to it in that if you're a person who wants to know more about people or inclined to want to peek into the strange and unusual lives that people have, we definitely have more access to that in forensics than in other aspects of medicine or, or pathology in particular. I work as a, a, as a news reporter by day. I hate the way that sounds, but I don't know of a better, <laughs> a better way to phrase it necessarily. But I've, I've only seen a few deceased bodies. And every time for me, it's been kind of a surreal experience. What was your first experience with that like? Was it surreal for you? The first experience that I had uh, with a dead body, I guess, if you want to call it that, was I think I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, I went to Israel with my dad and we went to uh, Jerusalem. We visited the medical school where he had trained. And at some point there we were wandering around. I think we got into the morgue and there was a body just out there that was clearly dead and it had a sheet over it. And, um, I was curious about it. So my, my dad asked me, do you want to see it? And I said, well, no, I I don't think I want to see the whole thing, just the hand. So he uncovered the hand and I remember seeing the hand and going, okay, that's enough. That was the first time. And and I got to say that 
what you do throughout medical school is a desensitization process. So you start off with your cadaver in anatomy class, but then as you do your rotations, you encounter patients who die. So you get to see them dead, and then you go into the morgue and you might see an autopsy. So it's a very slow process where you slowly get acclimated to the concept of death and the idea that um, you may follow, you know, your patient from living to dead and then maybe see their autopsy. Um, so that, that is in some ways harder, watching people die and following them as a, as a clinician and then seeing the autopsy or their organs outside of their body. That I find actually more distressing or disturbing than um, what I do now, which is I, when I first see them, they're already dead. They're not suffering anymore. And so in some ways, I'm starting from the ground up and I'm there to really give closure to their family members. You were working in New York during 9-11 when 9-11 happened. When did it kind of hit you that this was the significance of that? Oh, the moment it happened. I mean, I was walking into the building when the first plane flew over my head and I thought, oh, that's weird. That's kind of low. And it, it you know, I, I thought it wasn't normal. But then I normalized it. I go, oh, it's probably an early approach to LaGuardia or something. You know, like I, I didn't, I've never seen a plane fly that low before um, in that location of the city. Um, but I went in to the uh, office and I went to the bathroom. And when I got out, uh, one of my colleagues, doc, uh, Dr. Uh, Graham, came to me and said, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I said, oh, my God. And he said, um, we don't know what it is. It could be, uh, you know, an accident. It could be a uh, a sightseeing plane. We don't know what kind of plane it is. And I looked at him and I go, it's terrorism. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I saw the plane. It's terrorism. It's got to be terrorism. The phones are going to go down. We need to call right now. <laughs> go call your wife. And I called TJ because I knew the phones were going to go down. I had had experience with terrorism um, with my family in Israel um, that everybody gets on the phone after there's a terrorist attack and then it overloads the grid and the phones go down. I wasn't thinking that the towers would collapse, but I knew I had to um, call my husband and have him call my mom before the phones went down. And I warned him that I wouldn't be able to communicate with him until that maybe I'd be home later that night or the next day, but not to worry. So, so I knew right away the scope of what we were dealing with um, just because I saw that plane. And when the, when people started coming into the morgue, was, was it just one after another or how did that like, how does a process when you're dealing with something so big like that, how does that even work? It's, it, that's one of the reasons why in Working Stiff, uh, T.J. Mitchell, my husband, and I wrote the book. We focused on putting that at the end of the book <laughs> because we wanted people to have a concept to understand what we do day to day at autopsies, what's routine for us, um, to be able to distinguish that from what was happening during 9-11, which was definitely outside the routine. Um, in any mass fatality incident, 9-11 was an extreme version, but uh, extreme event, but it happens you know, mass fatality incidents happen uh, throughout the United States. There have been other terrorist attempts like the Oklahoma City bombing, um, ter terrorist attacks like the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, when when these multiple fatality incidents occurs, the first thing that you have to do is you have to set up a command center. And that's what happened is they set up a command center. Unfortunately, the command center that they set up was right at uh, the World Trade Center. And so when the um, buildings collapsed, they had to create another one. So it was created a little further away. Uh, then the bodies were triaged at the scene uh, initially, then brought to the morgue um, at the New York City office uh, 
which we had cordoned off the street. Um, and we had set up a temporary morgue in the loading dock of our office that then eventually got covered up with a tent. Um, so it was isolated and people couldn't have access to it. But we just didn't have the physical space to be able to handle our routine autopsies in addition to the 9-11 work. And then they just, we each got, each manned a table. Initially, we were two pathologists per table. Eventually, we were split up to one per table. We had assistants and staff, uh, including scribes who were students from NYU <laughs> a medical school. Uh, we had uh, odontologists, dental experts who were there to help with uh, dental identification, radiologists who were there to do x-rays. And it was done kind of an assembly line fashion because the focus wasn't on figuring out the cause of death. We knew what the cause of death was. They all died from multiple traumatic injuries. It's, that was a question. And we knew the manner of death because pretty early on we figured out what the circumstances were. It was all primarily focused on identifying who they were. So so that was the, the primary focus. Looking back at that whole experience, is, is there one memory, one thing that kind of jumps out at you? I mean, the one thing that really sticks with me even to this day is all those posters of the people who were missing. I, I just remember walking by them at Grand Central. They were up. They were up on the streets. They were up uh, in right next to the hospital and, you know, the, the hospital that was near next to us, next door to us, NYU a Medical Center. Uh, I just remember walking by them and staring at them initially and looking to try to memorize them and thinking maybe I should take them down so I could take them with me so I could use them to help identify the the people that I was seeing. But knowing at the same time, I can't really pull them down. That wouldn't be right. And then I can't possibly memorize all this and I can't look at their faces. I mean, they were just, they were photographs from weddings and bar mitzvahs and um, happy times with family members. I mean, it's not the same thing as trying to identify, you know, a, a person's physically damaged remains. And it's impossible to do it based on visual identification, but not for lack of trying on my part. Um, so it took me a while to be able to convince myself to look away and not look at the posters anymore and walk past them. I, I took a lot of um, fortitude to do that because I, I was so drawn to them and I wanted to look at them and remember them as real people and wanted to be able to identify somebody. But, you know, all the IDs were done uh, by scientific means, such as fingerprints, dental, x-rays, things like that. DNA was the biggest modality, but uh, but I, could, I couldn't do it just based on an eyeball, you know, based on, on looking at their faces. In a general sense, when somebody comes in, is it usually pretty obvious what the cause of death is, or do you really have to kind of dig in? It depends. It depends on the circumstances. I mean, if somebody is dead in their house and they're elderly, we may have some medical history and we might not even do an autopsy. We might rely on the medical records to certify their death. You know, if they have known hypertension or diabetes, we'll, we'll rely on that and we'll just write a death certificate based on the strength of the medical records. In other cases, we'll have absolutely no idea what we're dealing with. It's just a dead body in the street. We don't even know who they are. John Doe, here you are. Figure out why they died. So that's when you really have to start from scratch and uh, do a thorough external examination, internal examination, obviously try to identify them um, using things like uh, tattoos, identify marks and scars, and um, you know put out uh, 
missing persons report, check through missing persons reports to see if they match uh, the characteristics of this individual's, their hair color, eye color. Sometimes we even go through their clothing labels to figure out, you know, what clothing they're wearing and what size it was, because that might be on a missing persons report. So it's a lot more work when you're dealing with a real uh, head scratcher, you know, a John Doe who's found, as opposed to someone where we know who they are and we have a little bit of medical history. I mean, every person who dies in a certain area doesn't go through the medical examiner's office, right? Correct. So the medical examiner only gets involved in cases of sudden, unexpected, or violent deaths. If somebody dies in a hospital of known natural disease, there's no reason to call the medical examiner or the coroner. Um, the laws in most states are the same in that the job of the medical examiner or coroner is to investigate cases that might be concerned for the public health, which is why uh, we get involved in foul play, because there might be a killer out there. So we need to catch them. Um, not us, but the police You know, need to first identify that there was a crime. And then if there was a crime, catch the person who was responsible. Or if we don't know why they died, we have to investigate for public health purposes to properly classify the death for uh counting those logical for counting purposes um, and also to make sure that they don't have any infectious or transmissible disease that other people can catch now will you get called will you get called out to a crime scene every time or what dictates when you're going to go out there it depends on where you work. So at the New York City office, we did not routinely get called out to crime scenes. We just did a rotation for a few weeks with the death investigators and followed them around. So we got the experience of being able to go to crime scenes. But the way that office was structured, it was usually the death investigators who went to the scene. Um, in my experience working as a forensic pathologist in Santa Clara County and San Francisco County, I routinely got called out to uh, scenes we split call. So with the other doctors, it, sometimes it's every third week or every fourth week I'd be on call. And any death that was suspicious, I'd get called out for. They would The inve death investigators would get the routine cases. But if there was any homicide, any death where the investigator couldn't figure out what was going on, they would call us and we would go out at all hours, two, three o'clock in the morning things like that. And now where I currently work, um, it's most of the work of the death investigation is done by deputy coroners. And I only get go to scenes on rare occasions. When you do go to a scene and when you have gone out to a scene, would you just look at the body or would you look at other things? What were you looking for? It depends on what the scene is. So if it's a known homicide, I don't want to traipse around and disrupt the evidence. Um, the, the scene primarily belongs to the police, and my job is to just focus on the body. So I'm usually there in a homicide to answer questions for the police about things like, what kind of trauma do you see? How many times were they shot? Um, can you figure out why they died just from the injuries on the body right here without taking them in the morgue because we need to ask people questions and we need to know what questions to ask. So those are the things that usually come up in a homicide scene. But if it's a death scene where our investigators are on the fence, they're not certain what it is, there's some trauma, but they're confused, or they need the input of a, prof you know, of, of a professional, of a forensic pathologist, um, then I will look at the scene. We will look in the refrigerator to see if the person's been eating. We will look in the bedside table to see if they uh, have a suicide note in there or if they left a diary in there. Uh, we will look through their cell phone if we can get access to it to try to figure out what their last messages were. That helps us figure out the time of death or if they're despondent, things like that. And um, we will look at the body itself, of course, as well, to search for signs of disease or injury that can help us figure out what's going on. 
and and decide whether or not there's enough suspicious activity that we want to call the police out as well. What inspired you to start writing about some of your experiences? When I was a medical student, I had a doctoring rotation, it was called, with a physician who recommended that we keep a diary in medical school and document how we transition from being lay people who don't know anything about medicine to being doctors. And he said it would be really interesting to go back and look at it many years from now so you could see how your thought process changed as you transitioned to becoming a doctor. And I thought, oh, my God, I do not have time for that. (laughs) I don't know what he's thinking, but I'm working so hard just trying to memorize all this pharmacology. I do not have time to write a diary. But it, it stuck with me because when I decided to go into forensic pathology and I started my fellowship at the New York City office, I thought, now, this is something that nobody's ever done before, is kept a diary during forensics fellowship to document how you transition from being a doctor to being a detective. And I thought, well, that would be kind of cool. So I'm going to keep a diary. Let me keep a diary. And I've I've kept diaries in my uh, life, you know, when I was a teenager for brief periods of time. I kept a diary once when I was on a summer camp program um, looking at whales. So it usually was for a short, short periods, not I was not a you know regular journal writer, but I thought this would this would be something worth documenting, especially because all those television shows were becoming popular. CSI was pretty big at that point. Bones had just come out, I think, or or Crossing Jordan had come had come out too. That was briefly another forensic pathologist who was a woman, and I thought those television shows are just awful in that they don't really represent what we do. And they tend to give the impression that the pathologist knows everything instantaneously. They're just born with an inch or something. So I figured if I kept a journal, I could document that transition and maybe I can make it into a book. And wouldn't it be funny to call call it Working Stiff because that would be a great title. <laughs> so I actually came up with a title even before <laughs> the book was written. Um, so I kept a journal and luckily I had a commute back and forth from the Bronx every day. It was about an hour on the bus. And every day, going back and forth on either the bus or the subway, I or or the train. Sometimes I took the train. I would type up what I did that day, <laughs> um, what my experience was, even just half an hour or an hour's worth of time. And by the and and then I would download it to the computer when we got home. And at the end of two years of training, I had quite a, a lot of material, but it was all in chronological order because some days I would do the autopsy and then maybe a week later the person would get identified and then a month later I would get the toxicology report and I would finish the case and I would talk to the family and then maybe a year later I testified in court on that case. So I had to then restructure all those disparate entries and put them together as little stories and then I handed it off to TJ, my husband, who was the English major, and said, here, you do something with this. <laughs> I'm not the writer. You're the writer. And then we kind of sat on that for, for close to 10 years because we were raising our kids and I was working full time. And we just didn't have the time to work on it or the mental wherewithal to be able to deal with the 9-11 stuff. And I think at about the 10-year mark after Osama bin Laden was killed, we realized this isn't just our personal history. This is history, and we need to write this. So that's that's when TJ really started to sit down and put it together. He had the material in terms of my journals and my notes, but turning it into a work of narrative nonfiction, that was that was really his work and his, his effort. I mean, obviously, something like 9-11 is such a sudden impact event. But here in the United States, we have such an issue with opioid deaths, with gun deaths. Yes. 
yeah. what what do you as somebody who deals with that daily like what do you think about that the kind of what's happening it's frustrating because we can't do anything about it from the perspective of the forensic pathologist. Like there's certain deaths I can do stuff about. Um, if I see meningitis, I can call uh, public health and make sure that the relatives and the people who had direct contact with the deceased are vaccinated. Um, if I see a workplace injury where someone was injured on a job, there may be some physical aspect of the autopsy that helps us figure out what he was doing. Like he wasn't wearing his gear or he wasn't, you know, in a safety harness or whatever. I mean, sometimes I can give feedback to OSHA on that regard. Um, when it comes to most other deaths, look, the ones that you mentioned, gun deaths and opioid deaths, uh, outside of just giving the family closure so that they know what happened, I can't do anything to prevent that. Um, and so that's where my own you know, personal level of advocacy steps in where I you know, go on Twitter or I join uh, political organizations, I donate money. I mean, that's the only way that we can really fix those problems is if we work together. So I'm involved with an organization called um, Doctors for Camp Closure right now, which is uh, advocating for vaccinating migrants at the border uh, because I reviewed some of those autopsy reports for the press. And I feel like we need to s make a stand as physicians that, uh, number one, we shouldn't be keeping kids in cages or even adults in cages. Uh, the policies that we're having right now are dangerous and uh, potentially likely to spread infectious disease. Uh, the, uh, when it comes to gun violence, I've been active on not just on Twitter, but with other organizations like uh, Moms Demand and, other, uh, you know, the Sandy Hook Promise and others that I've donated to in the past and that I will continue to advocate and help them spread their word so that we can have some political movement to curtail the accessibility of guns in our society. What does a gunshot do? What does it do to the body? It depends. It depends on what part of the body it goes through and what kind of caliber weapon it is and the distance. So it's it's a complex answer. We have generally, what it does is it punches a hole when it goes in on the entrance, and then it uh, uh, causes a laceration on the exit. So that's how we can figure out entrances from exits in most cases. And then on the inside of the body, it creates a temporary cavity as the organs kind of oscillate inside. So it tears up those organs and depending on the velocity of the weapon, um, it's going to cause more damage, the higher the velocity, which is why uh, there's a good reason why uh, people are saying we shouldn't have uh, AR-15s and uh, weapons that shoot, you know, rifles basically that shoot at a very high velocity because they cause more tissue damage. Uh, not only is it more likely to kill somebody, but it's also, uh, more likely to cause devastating injury that can't be repaired or that would cause uh, surgical complications. It's it really devastating injury. And, of course, because of the sizes of the magazines, you can uh, shoot lots of people and are more likely to cause you know, a mass fatality incident as opposed to just killing one person. Are you ready for the hard questions? I thought those were the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm ready for any questions. Go ahead. What police procedural drives you nuts the most? Oh, what police? They, they all do. Every single one of them. I can't watch any of them. Um, I, 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 it would actually be easier to answer the question of which ones do I like, which ones do I think are accurate, um, than to answer the question of which ones drive me crazy because I just end up yelling at the television. Um, I, I guess which yeah, ones so, 
which one's yeah. the most accurate? Which one is the least accurate? Okay, so least accurate, I have to say, was that short-lived vampire forensic pathologist. I don't remember the name. It was called, like, Forever or something like that. I don't oh, remember I if you saw you... the... Did you see the preview for that? I know what you're talking about. I know, I yeah, can't... In, in, in the preview, he's talking to the dead body, and then one of his colleagues speaks to him, speaks to a cop and says he can figure out what they died, why they died without doing an autopsy. He's that good. <laughs> and I just went, oh my god, <laughs> that was just so laughably bad. What a terrible! Um, so, how does that get even get through? Like, who approved that? Yeah, no, I know that one. That one I could. I just the just the um, pilot. The preview for the pilot was enough for me. <laughs> I wasn't going to watch that one at all. I wasn't going to touch that one with a ten foot pole. Um, in terms of accuracies, I think that actually the original Law and Order series. Not I, I don't watch SVU, but the original Law and Order, which separated the relationship between the police. And the district attorney was much more accurate in terms of the different roles everybody played. I like the fact that the forensic pathologist, you know, the police would come and meet with the forensic pathologist for a brief scene and she would tell them something and then they would go off and do their investigation. So you didn't have the forensic pathologist running around with a gun and trying to solve the crimes. And I thought that that was quite accurate because it, it replicated the division of labor that we have in uh, forensic sciences. The police investigate crimes and the district attorney prosecutes their off the offenders. And then the medical examiner does the autopsy. You don't have this overlap that so many of the other shows tend to have. You have to testify at trials, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. That's a big part of the job. And you see all that in the original Law and Order uh, series, which uh, you don't see in a lot of uh, other police procedurals. Has... has- those kind of shows, have they had an effect on what juries kind of believe and are willing to look at as facts? It depends. I mean, I think that there is an assumption that juries are going to want to have the scientist answer the questions for them. And sometimes the science can't do that, that they're going to have to rely on things like testimony and their own gut feeling about whether they believe a witness or not. That I, I think that that is part of the jury training process that we go through when when you go through jury duty they um both prosecutors and defense attorneys uh nowadays because of the plethora of shows that are out there and people's interest in them will usually prepare jurors to say you know there there may not there you're going to hear some scientific evidence but you have to make the decision not based on what the scientist says but on your perception and your review of all of the evidence, including the witnesses statements. What would you, if you had to pick one, what would be your most interesting case? Who, for me, the most interesting cases are not the ones that make the news. <laughs> they are usually medical mysteries. So I would say that I had a case when I worked at the San Francisco office of a uh, man, a a middle-aged man who was having a facelift and the nurse who was supposed to be monitoring him after the facelift um, was not doing an adequate job monitoring him and didn't actually 
even take notes <laughs> to write down what his heart rate and blood pressure and respiratory rate was. She was supposed to be doing that, and she didn't do that. He stopped breathing. She tried to resuscitate him and failed. Um, he was brought to the hospital where he was resuscitated and survived for a few days on a vent until basically he was pronounced brain dead. So we were already a little delayed in getting to this case because we didn't find out about his death until um, – two days after the initial incident. And then we had to initiate the police investigation because the nurse's notes were missing. <laughs> and that was, that was a medical mystery. Like, where did they go? Um, so I got the police involved and they discovered that this nurse had run away with a monitor, like the monitor that he was hooked up to. She had taken it and put it in her bag and uh, put it in the trunk of her car and drove off. We had her going to her car on uh, CCTV, a local you know television uh, uh, video that was in the garage where her car was parked. So when she was supposed to be cleaning up the uh, room where he had been in after he went to the ICU, she was seen on this video going to her car. And the monitor had disappeared and her notes had disappeared. So then it became an investigation into her. I found out that she was involved in another death of a patient underwent plastic surgery about 10 years before with another doctor. And so in that case, the doctor had taken responsibility for it, but she still ha had some responsibility based on my review of the previous case. And then when we finally got the toxicology results back, it indicated that the patient was on drugs that would stop his breathing um, and that she had been the one administering it and hadn't been monitoring him because we didn't have the sheets. And so I certified the death actually as a homicide due to the med due to her negligence or the medical negligence and not monitoring him. Uh, initially, the DA didn't want to charge her at all. And I talked to them about charging her at the very least with stealing the monitor, which they did. Um, then she returned the monitor to her lawyer. <laughs> but they still charged her anyway with interfering with the coroner's investigation. Uh, she pled no contest. And then we also reported her to the nursing board. And it took about two years until finally uh, the nursing board took her license away. Wow. So she's no longer practicing. Strangest way you've ever seen someone die. Strangest. See, to me, things that other people think are strange, I don't think are strange because I'm used to it. I know that sounds odd, but I mean, most people would consider, for example, sexual asphyxia strange when you find someone dead in bed, you know, with a hood over their face and a gag in their mouth, and they've they've wrapped up their own um, arms and legs with uh, rope, and they're looking at pornography like that. That is not unusual for me to necessarily find, but other people would find that strange. I'm just, oh, that's another sexual asphyxia case. Yeah, I would imagine you've seen about everything. Yeah, I mean, my sense of what is bizarre is very different from other people. This is one, this is that one of our listener questions that we always say that we're going to ask. Okay. And have you ever had somebody you thought was dead get up off the table? No. They're declared dead by paramedics before they come to us uh, based on EKGs, at least in my jurisdiction. I do know that there have been other cases in other jurisdictions where people were not properly declared dead um, and have come alive either in the cooler or when the technologists were setting them up for an autopsy. 
um, that has has happened in other jurisdictions. It has not happened um, where I've worked. Thank God. <laughs> Man, I thought that was going to be, but I guess it does. I thought that was going to be a really dumb question, but apparently it actually has happened. You no, know, it does happen, and, and usually when it happens, then there's uh, feedback to the um, people who have made the declaration of death, whether it's the paramedics or the doctor at the hospital of, of how to actually make sure. Because it's, it, making a diagnosis of death is actually not as easy as you think it would be. Um, you want to make sure that the person's not breathing really shallowly. So it doesn't look like they're breathing, but they're just they're, they're, they're still breathing. It's just that their breaths are really spread apart. Um, you have to actually listen to make sure their heart is no longer beating. And in some cases, um, you know, do some tests, do some testing to make sure that they're not going to respond to pain, for instance, um, that they're not just in a coma because a person in a coma can look like they're dead. So tell me about First Cut. Oh, yeah. So First Cut's really exciting. I, I'm so s- super stoked about it. Um, what happened was I was working at the San Francisco Medical Examiner's office and I was, uh, I had my son who in, when, when in working stiff, we have a son who's a toddler. (laughs) By the time I was working at the San Francisco medical examiner's office, he was, um, in elementary school and then middle school. And he had, uh, he was at the San Francisco boys chorus. So I had a few hours after work let out and before I had to pick him up where I had this dead time and I couldn't go home. So usually I'd go into a cafe and start writing. The idea came to me to write first cut because I had some cases that were just so interesting at the San Francisco office. But instead of them being old cases that I could write about, they were current cases. So I figured, well, I'll just fictionalize them. Uh, The way the story starts out is a case of mine from San Francisco where a guy was sitting in a cafe and he was working on his laptop. And this petty thief came into the cafe, kind of looked around, saw the guy with the laptop and jacked the laptop. He grabbed it and started running. And that's besides cell phone theft. That is the second most common uh, type of crime that we have in San Francisco, that and breaking into cars. So this guy jacks the laptop and starts running. And the guy who owned the laptop gets up, pulls out a gun and starts shooting right there in the cafe. People are ducking, tables are going over, and he keeps shooting at him and shooting at him, follows him into the next store and eventually shoots him dead, gets the laptop out from under him and walks out the door. And all I could think of was what was on that laptop that's so important that you would shoot somebody over and i thought ah that's that's the what if question that's how you start a detective novel so i had been a big fan of kathy reichs and patricia cornwell who have both written fiction the thriller forensic drama and i thought oh i I could probably do this too so i started writing and i wrote about i'd say 100 pages and then again, as I am wont to do, handed it off to TJ and said, you're the English major. Can you do something? With this? <laughs> and so he was never one to like detective novels. He was not a detective novel reader, but I got him into the genre and he started re- re- researching it and reading it and reading books about how to write detective novels. And he said, I think I can do something with this. So that's that's again how 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 we work we work as a team i'm the idea person i come up with the idea and he does the follow through he he does all the hard work i want to thank dr melanick so much for joining us if you want to connect with her we have linked to her on our social media accounts 
We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we have also included her information on the RSS feed that's on her pot on on this podcast. Rather, um, if you get a chance, both of her books are awesome. It's just such a fascinating perspective, I think, on something that maybe we don't like to think about, but at the same time plays such a huge role in our lives. The books are working stiff, and the new one is first cut. Okay, now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. What up? On a scale of 1 to 10, how ready are you to die right now? Like a four. Okay. That's not... I thought you would be a little bit lower than that. I was I was going to say initially that I was like a seven, and then I actually thought about it, and I'm probably really like a three. Maybe even a two. Yeah, I mean, I don't really want to... I mean, I don't want to die right now. I mean, we're both kind of just getting our, our lives started with our families, but I mean, if, if it was to happen, I mean, you know, I think... Both our families are okay without us. They're probably better off without us, really. That is true. I mean, so let's say that you're just walking somewhere. You step out into the street. There's a bus coming. Like, you know it's you know it's happening. Like, this is it. It's done. What's the first <laughs> thought? that Do you think, I've had a good run? Or do you think, oh, man, I didn't do anything with my life? I'm probably thinking, uh, if I had to pick out of those two, that I, I've had a good run. It's been fun. Just make it quick. Please, God, don't let my large mass possibly survive this. That's the thing about your mass is that you're big enough where your belly <laughs> may actually cushion the impact enough that you could potentially you could potentially survive, whereas I would be killed. I mean, that bus better be doing at least 45 miles an hour to kill me. Nah, that's pretty fast. <laughs> okay, okay, if, if 25, if, I don't know. I think a bus could kill you if it hits you doing 25. We, especially like if you got hit on one of the sides where like the bus hit you and then ran over you with the tires, then you're definitely done. I mean, I guess, yeah, of course. I was kind of just thinking like if I'm hit by the bus and projected out of its, you know, continuing path. Okay. Let's say you get hit by a bus and you're going to crash into one type of a store. What kind of store do you want to crash into? Like your body gets thrown into what kind of store? I mean, if, if that's going to happen, I mean, I might as well go for like a, uh, like a Disney store where there's a lot of like little kids and families around. I want want them all to see it. See, I was going to go with like a yoga class or some kind of relaxing exercise class so that they would be <laughs> doing yoga and then just – you would never be able to do it again without the image of my mangled body crashing <laughs> through the window. <laughs> that, that would be uh... – that would be something you never forget if, if you're just doing yoga. And next thing you know, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little Norwegian guy just comes flying through the wall. Uh, actually, I took a DNA test. Even though my family has thought I was Norwegian, we're apparently not. So what what has it revealed about you? That you're actually yeah, African-American? I wanted to see where you were going to go with this that could potentially <laughs> not be racist. Let's, let's hear it. Let's see what edit you got. Edit that. Edit that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, I think I'm actually French. Oh, well, I mean, that would make perfect sense because Napoleon was a midget. Uh, see, no, he actually was not. First of all, if we can go through this again, I'll explain it in the new year. <laughs> Napoleon was actually measured at five foot six, but it was measured in French terms, which is not the standard height. So when people say someone has a Napoleon complex, 
that's actually a compliment because Napoleon would have, from a historical perspective, and I was a history major, would have been tall for his era. Kansas State, baby, four-year degree in history. K-State, baby, coming (laughs) through again. Here's the other question, right? What kind, what do you do, like, if you're going to make cereal, what are you doing? Are you going to put the cereal in first, or are you going to put the milk in first? I'm definitely a put the cereal in first, then the milk. I don't really know of too many people that put the milk in, then the cereal. I heard about one person, and I just, I can't even imagine that. Why would you ever put the milk in before the cereal? Like, that's I mean, just stupid. I mean, it, it, I always use a cereal as, like, a gauge for how much milk I need. Yeah, that's like a normal person thing. You put the. Did you just call me normal? Ish. Instead of a normal ish. <laughs> yeah, I, and that that would be weird to me to put the milk in because how do you know how much milk you need? I'm not sure that crazy of a person. I don't know unless you have it pre measured out. Um, are you ready for your? Do you have your segment? Sure. Let's uh, let's do this. All I have, right. I have a new segment too that we have to interrupt you with. After you go, I'm just gonna interrupt you at a random time. That's such BS, man. Why? Why do you gotta like ruin it? I've I've been on a roll the last three weeks. All right, as soon as you screw up, I'm gonna jump in. All right, fine. So uh, we'll start off with the uh, the social media shout out. Screw uh, it up right there. You said social media. You made it five seconds. <laughs> Give you. A- I I feel like you were gonna do anything just to interrupt me. No, I was actually gonna let it run out, and then that was just I you had to get hit for that. But go ahead, let's give you another shot. I mean, this is for the people, like you know. So, uh, social media. I did it again. Social media shout outs. <laughs> uh, social media shout outs. <laughs> my name's Sammy the Spitter. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so oh, we could have a segment. We could have likes. we could have a segment called Shul's Spit Takes. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, don't listen to him right now. Once again, appreciate it. Just because you don't comment, but you like our stuff, that uh, means a lot, and it's the only reason I'm doing it. Uh, anyways, so uh, Ryan, Brennan, Victoria, David, Dave, Muhammad, Jenna, Jasper, Edgar, and Mason. Give some shout out, some love, and I'm gonna give a uh, shout out to uh, uh, the Grotto Restaurant out of San Francisco that started following us on Instagram. Nice. The go- I don't know. Wait, I don't go- know if they actually listen to us or they just like everyone that comes across their page, but somehow they like us. So appreciate all of you. Like, subscribe, whatever the hell you have to do on social media, but keep it coming. And maybe next week I won't uh, slur your name. I don't know, but. Uh, Social media. <laughs> if you notice, I didn't have any S names in there on purpose. Yeah, that's a good uh, I did strategy. have San Francisco, but that's pretty easy. Yeah, you did that um, one. You did that one pretty well. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump in, and we're going to have a new segment that will probably run one time and only that, and that is going to be a <laughs> correction segment in which shout out to Bryce Roberts who pointed out that me saying four times a year, once a month, is not equal to four times a year. So if Bryce Roberts wants to continue and point out all of our mistakes or anyone else wants to point out any of our many mistakes, we may give you a shout-out as well. But we probably don't have that much time in the day. I'm No, we're wrong. People don't listen to this podcast for us to be factually right. We're not the American government here. Yeah. Oh, oh. Bazinga. <laughs> Whoa, did you say um, Bazinga? Bazinga, you know? No? All right. Anyways, let's just move on. Edit that part out. Uh, 
So pick between these: hot pockets or pizza rolls. Oh, come in. Am I drunk or am I sober? How about drunk and sober? Like you have to pick one for each occasion. I'm probably going to go pizza rolls both times. Honestly, the problem with the hot pockets is it's bigger, and you can never really get it cooked correctly. It's always lava hot on the outside and freezing cold on the middle. The pizza roll is a surefire bet. Like it's pretty hard to screw those up. I'm gonna go with uh, pizza roll. That's fair. I would probably do that for any occasion. Yeah. Um, you have to choose between you get stung by a bee, or you have to deal with multiple mosquito bites. Which one are you picking? I'm taking the bee sting all day. Damn, really? Oh yeah. I I don't bee sting doesn't phase me that much. I've never understood why people freak out about a bee sting unless you're allergic to it. Just a little uh, bit of pain and not that big of a deal. <laughs> Mosquitoes carry like legitimate serious diseases. You should, that's a concern. <laughs> Coming from a history major, go Wildcats. What? Yeah. Um, it's not the I, same thing. You have to wear one of these clothing items and you have to wear it for a week straight. You can't take it off. So it's either going to be tube socks or cut off a cut off t-shirt. What, well, am I wearing tube socks with pants on? Because I can just wear that. I mean, I can just cover them up with pants. Yeah, but, like, it's just wearing the tube sock that comes up to your fucking ankle, like your kneecap. I mean, how's that any different than dress socks? People wear that all the time. Dress socks are comfortable. You've bought me a pair of dress socks. I, I have, actually. That's That might have been my wife, though. I'm not entirely sure. Looks like your um, wife probably picked them out. Oh, well, that's... I don't know if that's a compliment or, uh, or a diss, but uh, if she listened to this, which she never would, I would hope that she hates you even more. Um... Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, like, the big, thick, white tube socks from, like, the 60s and oh, 70s. Like the ones with the, the – there's the, I know what you're talking about. And they have, like, the three-colored stripe at the very top with, like, the one big stripe and then the two other stripes on the sides. Yes. Do I have to – like, God, that's actually – how am I in – what kind of shape am I in? Regular, <laughs> decent, or chubby? Let's say average shape. See, now that I think average shape makes it worse to wear a cutoff T-shirt because then you should know that you shouldn't be wearing that. Like if you're <laughs> in good shape or just completely out of shape, it's either showing off or showing that you don't give a fuck. So I think average makes it worse. I might rock the tube socks, man. I'm a firm believer that once you graduate high school, you shouldn't wear a cutoff anything anymore. <laughs> Well, I mean, we we have hated on that quite a bit, and I I'm I'm right there with you. I'm I uh, you know. Yeah, you're right there I, with me. What else are you gonna say? <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Edit that. Edit that out. Nothing. I got nothing else to say. I'm not I'm not in the mood to just open myself up to your abuse right now. Hey, did you ever? How's your partner yoga going? Uh, <laughs> I haven't done it in uh, what has it been now? Eight years? Nine years? For people who may have not listened to the last episode or paid attention to it, John Shaw paid for two years of college classes in which he did man-on-man partner yoga. <laughs> First off, there's nothing. Was... There's nothing factually incorrect about that statement. No, there's nothing factually incorrect, but you're sensationalizing it a little bit. No, you're taking it as being sensationalized. I merely stated the fact that you paid for two semesters of man-on-man partner yoga at college. <laughs> it was technically one total year, two different semesters. Okay, so, yeah, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> I, 
You're you're absolutely correct. I don't know what you're what you're trying to. You're trying to say this. that it's not. Also, could you really quickly please give us your scent of the month? My what? Your scent of the month. You're a big candle oh. fan. Scent of the month. Well. Well, I mean, it, it is January, so uh, I'm probably going to go with something a little more crisper, a little more, like, sharp smelling. So maybe, like, a good pine is good right now. Okay, okay. Or maybe, like, at the end of the month going into February, like, a good lilac is good. All right, good. All right, thank you. That's good. No, that's good, solid advice from a candle expert. Um, Are we? Wow, we're already at our top five. Yeah, I mean, we're just, we're moving right along, which is probably fine because i don't think people want to hear us anyways no not really um so our top five is top five ways you don't want to die what's your number five (laughs) which i don't know about you but i had a lot of fun thinking about this and then also realized that if any of this was to actually happen i'd be really sad yeah and apologies (laughs) to anyone who had a family member or loved one who may have died this way (laughs) yes Way to put out that disclaimer. Way to um, put out that disclaimer. Uh, so I have my number five is being poisoned. Really? Wow. I do. And when I when I mean poisoned, I mean I, I'm thinking of like the movies, like oh, where yeah. you know you're you're with somebody and you drink something, and then they like just look at you as like your nose starts to bleed, and then you slowly just die. So you're talking about like spoiler alert, Game of Thrones, Joffrey style. <laughs> Yes, uh, something like that, yeah, where you just, like, you know you're dying and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. Yeah, I never even thought of poison. My number five is uh, getting sucked into a wood chipper. Oh, man. That, uh, that's not on my list, but that uh, that would be absolutely, like, do you think my body type would be completely consumed by the wood chipper oh, or would yeah. I need some extra pushing? You, I mean, somebody would probably have to finish you off because you might get stuck around the ribs area but i mean it grinds up trees i don't think it would have much trouble with you <laughs> i mean you it would just be a yeah it'd be oh, done in seconds but that's <laughs> my like my ultimate fear of being sucked into a wood chipper <laughs> that's pretty terrible um yeah, it'd be awful what's your number four uh being suffocated oh by like somebody else yeah yeah like what have you been doing what? lately <laughs> One, once again, kind of like the, you know, like thinking of a movie, movie-esque, you know, like someone's behind you with like a, a plastic bag over your face or like over you with a pillow, you know, like you're, you're realizing that it's time, you know what I mean? Like you're going to die no matter what you do. I feel like you need to be nicer to people. You seem to have some pretty <laughs> worrisome <laughs> fears about something happening to you. <laughs> well, you know. You uh, live the life that we've lived. I'm sure somebody hates us somewhere. Probably. Probably most of the people who listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> my number four is being burned alive or catching on fire. Okay. I have that on my list, but it's a, it's a little higher up. Okay. Yeah, I can see that one. I mean, my next – aside from my number one, pretty much my four, three, and two are all interchangeable. I mean, they're all pretty bad. What's your number three? Uh, my number three is drowning. Ooh, no, wait. That was my number two. No, wait, let me look. No, I have number three. My number three is drowning. That sounds awful to me. Like, that's just horrible. Yeah, I I, I know. Like I, I put it at three. I think a lot of people would be one or two. But for me, like, I don't really go in water that much on purpose. Yeah, because so, you're, 
And to continue making fun of your body type, you are more floatable than other people. <laughs> like he would take By the you way, a while. Uh, Nick isn't bashing everyone who's a little husky out there. He it, just uh, is bashing me. It's specifically so uh, targeted at him. Yes. Don't yeah. Don't uh, don't take anything he says uh, to heart anymore. Look, it's I went fine. to the doctor two weeks ago, and he said that I am in the obese category. Well, that's fucked or messed up because of your BMI, right? Well, yeah, that, and I think I have adult onset diabetes because I really like M and M's. What kind of M and M's? Peanut man, the only kind. What the fuck are you talking about? No, those are arguably one of the worst kind. What are you gonna go with then? You gonna put regular up there like an asshole? Yeah, I'm either going regular or the peanut butter kind. Oh, get out of here. That's not good at all. And how can you hate on peanut and like peanut butter? It's the same damn thing. You know what peanut butter is made of, right? It's made of peanut. (laughs) So, uh, M&M's, if you're listening and you want to sponsor us, apparently Nick could use some free bags of uh, peanut M&M's. Apparently I shouldn't be eating them anymore. Thanks for diabetes, (laughs) M&M's. Uh, my number two is uh, being burned alive. Okay, my number th- – wait. Yeah, my number two is being burned alive. What the fuck am I, I – see, the problem is I got those directional arrows where I switched something and now I don't know which way to read them. No, <laughs> my number three is drowning. My number two is being – oh, my number two is being burned – buried. B-U-R-I-E-D, like buried oh. in the ground alive. <laughs> we're, we're getting this trained out. Yeah, buried is uh... – Different than burn. It's not on my list, but uh, yeah, that's that'd be a terrible way to go. Yeah, that seems to me like it would be one of the worst ways because you're just sitting there like I'm gonna die here and there's nothing I can do. Like now, when you when you're saying buried, are you are you referring to like being buried by dirt or like in concrete? Either way, I don't think you can breathe in concrete. By the way, just so you know, um, <laughs> I know you can't breathe when you have. 20 pounds of dirt on you. Maybe if you cover your mouth. It's probably, <laughs> you're probably correct there. I, you probably have a limited oxygen supply. Either way, I mean, that seems awful, right? Yeah, that's terrible. What's your number one? Uh, being eaten alive. By by other people? Or by... Either. By a great white shark, by all other people. You know, like pretend you break your leg in the Amazon rainforest and you're on the floor of the rainforest and a bunch of those fire ants come on you and eat you alive. Okay, where would being eaten alive by people be on your list of things you don't want to be eaten by? Am I alive while they're eating me? Let's just say yes, but you would also be alive when anything starts eating you. You got five minutes, you're going to be alive when they start. I, I put it in my top five, but it's probably like number five. Okay, let's just pretend for a second that you were going to eat somebody alive. Where would you start? Oh, my God. Uh, probably like the calves. Okay, I was going to go thigh. I would start with the thigh, I feel like. Yes, yeah, so somewhere in the leg where it's a lot more meaty and like more muscle. What Now, would you start there for flavor or why would you start there? <laughs> uh, for, for more muscle. If, if I'm eating somebody... It's not because I want to be eating them. That is true. I guess you're trying to preserve yourself at that point. Do you honestly think that if you were in that position, that you could just, like, take a chunk out of me? Well, I mean, yeah, if you were already going to be dead. (laughs) I couldn't eat my own family members. I mean, I would actually expect other people to eat me. 
if we were in a situation like we were trapped in the mountains or something and I was dying and the only way for anybody else to live would be to eat me, I'd be like, yeah, dude, dig in. <laughs> I'm not going to miss not it. Not much to eat, that's for sure. Yeah, like what are you what what's the alternative? Like you die too? That way we'd be part of each other. I was asking more or less like it's not so much like the person saying go ahead. It's like could you actually do it? Yeah. I I don't know if I could. I say I could and I mean I'd get pretty hungry. Yeah, I mean dude like you can't resist snacks for more than three hours. You really think that you're going to be up in the mountains like three days in? Your buddy's (laughs) dead next to you? You're not going to be looking at him? Come on now. I mean, I, mean I, I think everybody would. I really think that everybody would. Like, you don't even have a choice. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a good question to to ask our international fan base. Okay, I like how you worked that in there, which is probably down to zero now because we've basically advocated for cannibalism in the last <laughs> five minutes. For real. That's 100% true. For real. What's Can- in your honorable mention? Cannibal. I didn't even give you my number one. Uh, for real though, cannibalism is frowned upon and you shouldn't do it. Uh, my number one is actually just in my sleep. I think that would be the worst way to die. See, I think that would be most people's like best way to go out is in their sleep. But I look at it in the circumstance of it's the last thing you're ever going to do. I want to at least know what it's like. Like, I don't want to just go to bed and then not wake up. That, that to me sounds awful. So you'd rather have like some tragic death than just drifting away peacefully into the night? I would rather have a slightly tragic death. (laughs) Right? Like I would rather have at some point, I would rather know that like, oh, I'm dying. And I would would like to know what that actually is like. Well, one thing's for sure. If uh, when, when you do decide to leave us, I hope you don't come back as a ghost and haunt me forever. I would like to be a ghost. That'd be awesome. What's in your uh, honorable mention? So I put, uh, like, getting a virus, like Ebola. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or like, AIDS or something like that. I also have being butchered alive. <laughs> that would be pretty – like, they're just chopping you up, like, in Saw? Yeah, just like, you know, like, toe, 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 you know, ankle, leg kind of thing. Um, and, then my, and then I put on there uh, being electrocuted. Okay, that's pretty high up there. I could see that. Uh, my honorable mention would be falling to my death. I wouldn't want to fall to my death. I, w- I forgot about that's a good one. Falling to your death. I'm gonna add that to my honorable mention. I wouldn't want to be in a car wreck either. Specifically, a car wreck that's not my fault. Like I was just in my lane doing my own thing, and dude swerves across six lanes and gets me. Yeah, that. I mean, it, I, I was thinking about putting like being in a roller coaster accident on there. Yeah, but, like any kind of freak. I wouldn't want to be smushed by anything. Like, I wouldn't want to have, like, two cars sandwich me in the road. Or, like, be working at, like, a shipping dock and have a shipping container fall on top of you. Oh, yeah, being, like, crushed. Oh, that'd be awful. <laughs> that last that look. I can terrible. picture Well, Imagine that scene when the medical examiners get there. Oh, nothing. Just nothing. I don't think there would be anything. You'd be just be flat like a pancake. Yeah, all your bones would break and you would just be like intestines. Right. I would also, I think my last honorable mention would be anything where I'm impaled in the eyes. I can't oh. watch that in movies. Whenever they step, they always got to stab somebody in the fucking eye. 
<laughs> well, you don't watch anything scary. That's why, because I don't want to get stabbed in the eye. <laughs> yeah, I, impalement doesn't. Uh, I, I don't. I don't want anything to do with that at all. I also wouldn't want to be decapitated by like a flying object. If you were impaled, though, would you like to be impaled from the front or impaled from the back? Probably from the back, because then I, I wouldn't see it coming. Okay. <laughs> Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of the Profoundly Pointless Podcast. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We've got some, actually got some good stuff planned and have some accomplishments. Well, not accomplishments. I guess it's an accomplishment that we have stuff planned. Let's just leave it at that since I already messed this up so bad. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.